now I'm being asked to say goodbye to large parts of that life that I was competent at, that I was proud of. And now I'm being asked to turn around and rebuild. And I felt, yeah, I, I felt spectacularly overwhelmed by that, by the notion that in my 50s, I was going to have to build something new again. And I'll be honest, Liz, there was a sort of a sense of, have I, is this a failure? Like, how am I back at this stage again? How am I having to recreate? How did I not see this and plan for this? Hello and welcome. My name is Liz Gleason. I'm a psychotherapist who specializes in loss and grief. You're listening to the Shapes of Grief podcast. Shapes of Grief is a curation of stories from international guests who share their unique experience of loss and grief. It's a privilege to hold these conversations and I extend my deepest gratitude to all my guests. I know that some of you listeners want to learn more about this landscape of loss and grief. If you're interested, check out our online grief training program on shapesofgrief.com. And please do sign up for our free masterclass available at the link in the show notes. And in the dead of night, my darling, find the gleaming eye of starling, like the little aviator, sing your heart to all dark matter. Welcome to this episode of Shapes of Grief. And I'm joined again by Mary Canali. Mary, you're so welcome. Hi, Liz. How are you? Lovely to be back. Yeah. And I'm I'm so glad you got in touch with me, Mary, about your new book that's going to be coming out soon. And we're looking at transitions this time and the grief associated with transitions rather than the grief associated with a bereavement. And... And these transitions are often called ambiguous loss because mm. nobody has died yet something has been lost. And mm. um, so I'm really delighted to explore this topic. Haven't explored it on the podcast at all yet. And um, so thank you for bringing it to the plate, Mary. We're Thanks, looking, at, looking at aging. Why yeah. is that a grief in your opinion and in your experience? Um, I... I always actually was comfortable with my age. I was never, I never uh, had a moment when I felt I had to say I was younger than I was. If, if The last time I remember um, having an issue with my age was when I was young and having to say I was older than I was to get in somewhere or, or to go somewhere. Um, and so I was very blindsided. By. And I don't think it's the number. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I was uh, I'm almost 53 now. So I was 53 years ago. I think it was the number of things that happened at the same time. Um, I, I got an empty nest uh, suddenly after many years. My nest emptied out. Mind you, it has uh, it fills up again at the summer and, and sometimes that's as difficult as it emptying out. Um, I, I had a kind of a health scare. I had gone through the menopause in actual fact quite, quite early. So, I mean, I, the fact that it was still bothering me, the fact that these our body not being 
what we want it to be and not doing and not behaving the way that it used to do. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't understand why it uh, suddenly all of this came down on top of me. And I, I really did feel a loss. And I think what I felt even more than a loss was I felt lost. I didn't feel that I understood where was my direction? Who was I now if I wasn't going to be? And and for the book, what I did was I used the um, Celtic triple goddess, you know, which is in a load of mythologies. You know, the maid is the beautiful young woman. And, and, and I mean, there were insecurities at all times of my life, you know, when we're young and, and we're so beautiful and we don't realize how beautiful we are, but we are. We feel insecure. We compare ourselves um, as a mother. Uh, you know, when we're really, I think, probably at the height of our powers, we're also uh, exhausted and pulled and dragged and and trying to do so many things and be so many things. And then I just came to this stage because I'd had a health scare. I had retired. And so who am I now if I'm not, you know, it, like one of the things that caused me a great difficulty <clears throat> was people would say, and what do you do? And suddenly I didn't have an easy answer, you know, because I was on sick leave for a while and I, 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 I would kind of, I used to be a school principal. And so uh, was I a school principal anymore? Wasn't I a school principal? Um, it, it's, you know, I would say I'm retired. I was actually at a wedding on Saturday and somebody said, oh, what do you do? And I said, I'm retired. I'm now a writer, which is my standard answer now. I had to practice it because it didn't come easy. And the person just looked at me and said, you can't be retired. You're too young. You know, so we have all these judgments and arbitrary values on everything that we do. And it all came together. And I found it actually kind of brutal. And so I worked through it. And then in this book, I invited friends of mine who are artists mm. to help me work through it. I won't apologize. My dog is snoring in the background. I was going to say, there's some technical thing going on. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Labrador snoring in the background. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay. <laughs> oh, Mary, there's so much in what you've said. And it's really interesting because when I give webinars on loss and grief, you know, we look at all the non-finite losses such as retirement, redundancy, divorce, separation, um, but yet there's so few people speaking about it, you know, and that sense of, you know, loss of identity following mm. retirement. And I think one of the, the times I've been most struck and moved in my life was doing a theatre piece in Athlone a few years ago, uh, playback theatre at the Athlone theatre festival and there was a tiny tiny audience and we got onto the theme of uh, loss and grief and this older man stood up and shared that he was a retired vet um, and he didn't know who he was anymore what was his place in the world and he felt so lost and it was such a loss it was the the bereavement of his career mm. What yeah. was that like for you? In one way, it's it was a, a, a difficult, busy job. You know, can you imagine being a principal at secondary school now through COVID and things like that? It was difficult and busy. 
I didn't intend to retire at that time. It was health related. So that probably made it more complicated. But I, I'm going to tell you, Liz, I was sitting one day. I had to go in and, and get some forms signed related to the retirement um, in this local social welfare office. I didn't know what time it opened at. So I was there at nine o'clock and it didn't open until half past nine or ten. Or I was there at half nine, it opened at ten. And I was sitting in the car. And I suddenly realized most days in my life, it would not matter if I got out of my pajamas or not anymore, you know. And it was that sense of I didn't know who I was in the world anymore. I'd had a job where people noticed if you didn't come in. People noticed if you were having a bad hair day. People, you know, you were I was very um, I was meeting an awful lot of people face to face each day. And suddenly I was and, and and happy to be retired, happy that I was healthy and, and, and could enjoy retirement. But at the same time, completely flummoxed as to who I was now, what I, what I was going to do with the rest of my life. Like when the rest of your life suddenly comes and retirement is this odd thing we look forward to, you know, if I win the lotto tomorrow, I'm going to retire. When I retire, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And yet when it comes, it's the day-to-day -day stuff I hadn't figured out. What was I going to do each day? I was terrified. I mean, I had fears. I was terrified that it would mean I would not get out of bed ever, that I'd be in my pajamas or that I'd get addicted to playing computer games or, you know, you know, I was worried about these things. What was I going to do when there was no structure? Now, I never in my life stayed in bed beyond a certain time. Like I, I hadn't I didn't understand that I could lean into life habits that I could lean into the fact that I really don't have the temperament to play computer games all day and I don't have the temperament to stay in bed all day. But I was really worried that perhaps I would. And then on top of it, and, and I have to say this, I, I, look, I don't know, and I would be very interested to hear from a man who says, no, no, it's not just for women. This exists for men too. Because I don't I don't think a lot is spoken of of the male menopause and that sense of your vitality is is not what it used to be. Um but I certainly felt it as a woman. You know, and I'd heard about the menopause. I had gone through the physical menopause. I was I was through my menopause at 43. I actually had an early onset menopause and none of it bothered me when I was working I still felt vital I still felt um out there I still felt that I was interacting with people as me I think it was the combination of all of these things together and I suddenly thought I don't have a roadmap for how to be an older woman and I realized that the roadmaps that exist weren't going to do me. And I, I want to be very careful here. I, I know that each one of us picks our own map um, and, and picks our own you know, journey. And I, I don't have any condemnation for anyone who picks the journey that they pick. But it seemed to me 
that as an older woman, there were these two choices looming in front of me. One was to to worry about every wrinkle and every um, curve and every uh, blobby bit and saggy bit. And, you know, um, and I did worry about those things for a while and I found it absolutely relentlessly negative and diminishing to be honest with you i i just cannot do that fight and i i understand why women do i felt the call to it but i feel for me if if i was going to be trying to look like uh you know i was still in my 30s all i could hear was this negative voice saying oh you're too this or you're too that Hi everyone, excuse this brief interruption. It's Liz here and I wanted to tell you about my grief training program. If you are interested in becoming grief literate or grief trained, I've designed a comprehensive online program which you can do at your own pace in your own time. It's been designed primarily for healthcare providers, but we all have a right to grief training and education. So if you're interested, then it's for you too. Sign up today at shapesofgrief.com. Now, back to the podcast. The other pathway that I could see in front of me was sort of, well, then be old and sit in a corner and sit in a rocking chair and mind your grandchildren when they come and and have nothing of use to say and, and in some way be relegated to uh, the old woman in the corner on the chair. Get out of the rocking chair, grandma, you know, and. And I, they were the two things that sort of loomed ahead of me. And I I really thought I was depressed at the thoughts of either. And I thought neither one of those are me. Where am I going to go? How am I going to be an older woman that's not ready to sit in the corner, but that wants to be valued, not because I look young, not because I still look like when I was in my 30s, that wants to be valued for where I am now. And yeah. and that was difficult. It sure is. And I can't help but wonder, is this a symptom of Western society and the patriarchy and, you know, a misogynistic society rather than a biological or a psychological phase that we go through? You know, is it in comparison to what's out there? I'd like to know how women in non-Western societies go through menopause and, and is it, you know, what is their experience? Yeah. Because a lot of what you're saying is, you know, from the perspective of a woman, you know, and sorry, Siri's about to talk here, I better turn it off. A lot of what you're saying is from the perspective of, you know, that male gaze that we internalize <sighs> throughout our lives. Um, and I have friends who, you know, cherish their looks and cherish how they present in the world. And I often wonder, how are you going to be when you lose that, you mm. know, you lose that um, perception of beauty? I And I and, and I was coming very much from that angle, Liz, but I, I did feel I had to reverse the truck on that a little bit, because yeah. if, if that is something that brings you joy, then glory on you, off you go. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? If um, I, I didn't want to fall into stereotypical anything, you know, so I didn't want to be in any way judgmental of 
the woman who, because I have friends who, you know, have had a, quite a bit of work done, who, who are getting the Botox done, who look fantastic. And maybe there is a, a cliff that, you know, and that's the path they have chosen. Um, I don't think I was ever in that category in a way, do you know what I mean? So it wasn't a path that was open for me. It was a path that I found desperately punishing. I found if I was going down that way, I could never, uh, whatever it is within me, I could never feel that I looked, um, you know, good enough or young enough or thin enough or, you know, so it was a very punishing kind of a path. And, and like one of the things that happen when you retire, when you go through menopause, when you have an empty nest, all of these things that came is the page was torn up. And so I was, I was left trying to open maybe this page or maybe this page or maybe this page. And I was unsure of myself. I don't judge any woman who picks a particular page. I wonder, I certainly think it's exacerbated in Western culture. But I think if you look at other cultures, that second roadmap is imposed on a lot of women. I think, you know, that sort of be a grandmother, be um, an old woman. And actually that's why I picked the crone. And it was very funny um, that the two artists that I work with, one was Rebecca Carl, the other is Susan Hitching. Um, and Rebecca and Susan, um, I, I, you know, we're all within a decade of each other, more or less. And uh, they had both had health scares as well. They had all found themselves trying to figure this out. Um, and they hated the term crone. And we argued and argued and argued. And they kept saying, do you have to use that term? It's so awful. And it makes us sound old and haggard and awful. And, and in actual fact, it was the one thing that I did stick to was the term crone. Because I said it, it, it encapsulates for me how the, the, the male version of a crone being um, a, a hermit, which appears mystical and wise and somebody who has voluntarily withdrawn from the from the world and somebody who has um, people will come to see in actual fact to seek out their wisdom, whereas the crone. I mean, and we have this horrendous, like the crone, if you go the Disney route, the crone mm -hmm. is the woman with the horrible nose and the warts on the nose and the black shawl. And I thought, I refuse. I refuse either one. I'm not going to try to be younger than I am anymore. And I refuse to say there's only one way to be old. Did anymore. you have any role models, Mary? Did you see anybody that you thought they, they've got a different ground, they have a different direction that appeals to me? That's what I want to embody. It's, it is amazing that you should say that because I felt when I looked around um when I, when when i looked to my mother's generation i thought god they really were they they were probably the last generation where the majority didn't work outside the home they were completely these home managers this was their life and then all their children left and what did their life become and i see the way they are enjoying each other and they you know but it was very much things like the ica or this group or that group and i thought 
I'm I'm not ready for that. Now, do I see people? Yes, I see people around me, you know. Um, I see people who have like I uh, really had a great fondness for the late Marion Finucan. Uh, I had a great fondness for uh Nula Whelan, who uh actually knew Nula and I were were friendly and uh, we knew each other and I I found her to be so amusing because like she she could be so wise and she could, and then she would turn around and say I really don't know what I'm doing I'm totally confused like she was so open about like not having all the answers um so it's people like that that I could look at and say okay but and and actually the the similarity is I think that they found their thing. Um, you know, they found something that they felt I can do this and I can even bring something extra to this. The older woman, actually, I can bring my wisdom. I can bring my smarts or I can bring in, in Nula's case, it was often just she would bring her honesty. You know, mm. she would just let it all out there that she didn't have the answers and that she didn't know what to do. And uh, and I thought, yeah, I'd like to get to that stage where I'm happy, where I don't really care if people say, oh, my God, look at what she's wearing today. Or I don't really care, um, it, it, you know, but I'm not I don't think I'm there, Liz. You know, there's there's a lot of griefs that we have and. I remember once hearing um, an actress, she was an American actress um, and she was in some kind of legal drama and it was an interview that she did and she was a very, you know, uh, good looking lady and uh, hair very well done. You know, she was an actress. I mean, looks for her. And she described, you know, from the back, she still looked so young. And she said she would turn around and sometimes she would hear men go, you know, she would hear the disappointment when they would look in her face. And I, I, I'm not, um, I was never svelte and good looking or anything like that. But, you know, it is a big thing to let go of that part of ourselves that draws admiration. You know, yeah, that gaze again. Yeah, the male gaze, like that's hard to do. And um, and actually, it's hard to I, I think and I've always thought it a little bit. Women are our best support and our harshest critic at the same time, sometimes, you know, so it, it is hard to be glossed over in any way, shape or form. I mean, it really visibility, invisibility. And the <laughs> funny thing is that word I've heard again and again and um, again, you know? Yeah. There's many women who reject that early on, that male gaze. And I think I think some of us do it quite unconsciously, but it's only in retrospect to go. That's why I stopped paying so Doing. much attention, because why should I, yeah. you know, and for yeah. who, you know, but it's, it's, it's interesting. Mary, what else do you feel you've lost as a result of this transition or, or that you, you've to let go of? All transitions can be difficult and there's lost all of them, but it doesn't mean they're, they're bad, you know, but it can feel that way for a period of time. Any bad yeah. we've let go of are usually clung to for a while. Like 
as a mom, and I, I want to be careful because I know there are women who are my age who haven't chosen to be a mom. So I don't want to be exclusive. As a mom, you have a relevance when you have children living in the house. Uh, as somebody who's at work, you have a relevance. You have a real relevance. Even if it's only that people are given out about you and saying, I went up and I asked her for this and I didn't get it, or my child didn't get the class and that our principal isn't listening, but you have a relevance. You have that relevance as a mother also. If you're the one they have to come to to ask for the money or they want to go on this trip or they want to whatever. Um, and I think that relevance, um, like it's, you know, you build a life, whether, you know, no matter how you go about it, whether you are partnered with somebody or not, whether you are parenting or not, you build a life. And suddenly you start to realize now much, I'm much older. I'm much less enthusiastic. I'm much less willing to compromise. And now I'm being asked to say goodbye to large parts of that life that I was competent at, that I was proud of. And now I'm being asked to turn around and rebuild. And I felt, yeah, I, I felt spectacularly overwhelmed by that, by the notion that in my 50s, I was going to have to build something new again. And I'll be honest, Liz, there was a sort of a sense of, have I, is this a failure? Like, how am I back at this stage again? How am I having to recreate? How did I not see this and plan for this? And we all plan in some ways, you know, anyone who's paying into an ABC or a pension fund or, you know, we think we're planning. But a lot of our planning is exactly for that. It's financial. It's theoretical almost. We're not planning for who am I going to be? Where is my relevance in the world going to be? Um, I'll, I'll tell you another thing that I found challenging is our body no longer behaves as we thought it would, as it has been behaving. We can neither neglect it or count on it in the same way that we could before. So, uh, you know, it, like I suddenly found myself, I need my sleep, you know, and it's a non-negotiable. I need my sleep. If, I, if I'm not getting my sleep, I'm not good the following day and I want to curl into a ball in the middle of the day or, you know, Having gone a lifetime where, uh, in fact, I had chronic insomnia for a while, so I might have had two nights in the week when I didn't sleep at all. And this was just natural to me. And suddenly I need my sleep at, at 11 o'clock at night. Everybody, all the young folk are revving up and I'm just like, I'm going to bed. Thanks. Nice. <laughs> you know, that way of being in the world physically being very different, different, having pains in the morning when you wake up, having like it's really challenging. It's and I didn't foresee it and I didn't prepare for it. Or being delighted when a friend cancels. Yeah. And you can't go out on a Saturday night because you know, yeah. yeah. 
and you get that little leap inside oh I can just read yeah. my book or I can know, read my book something. you know yeah, yeah. It's interesting, yeah. Mary, because uh, there's a lot of talk in recent years about the menopause, but yeah. about the physical symptoms of menopause. And it's all about combating the menopause, combating aging, you know, like you said at the beginning, trying yeah. to hang on to youth. But why, you know, why can't we find ways to transition, to embrace this new phase which brings so many positives as well, mm. you know, and, and I, I agree with you. There's there's some real brutality that goes on during menopause, but I find things like, you know, stuff that used to bother me just doesn't my, I filter less things. I'm much more authentic. I think I've always been, but even more so, which can get me into trouble. <laughs> my priorities are different. And, um, you know, I care less about things. It's there's there's nice bits about it. Mm -hmm. And I would love to see women embracing that and talking more about that and, you know, inviting each other into this phase rather than sharing hacks, how to avoid it, how to stay younger, mm -hmm. how to where to get your hair done, how to do the Botox, what to wear to stop showing off the, you know, the belly fat or whatever stupid nonsense. Well, you know, in my opinion, there's a lot of stupid nonsense, but it's very important to other people. And um, I hear you when you say to respect that, but yeah, where are those alternatives? And I think that's what, that's what I was trying to work through. And um, if I, if I put it in terms of seasons, if, if spring is the maid and summer is the mother and the, the blaze of power and things like that. I thought the only option was hang on to summer or be cast into winter. And actually there is a poem in the book about that, about hang on, there's a thing called autumn. Will you read that? Oh, <laughs> autumnal cloak, because there is a thing called autumn. And I mean, I think that's massive. And it, it took a while for me to learn that. So this is autumnal cloak. I am no longer spring. When I offered up my song of burgeoning possibilities, an intoxicating promise, hope filled yet tentative. When forced to surrender my glorious summer self, sunflower elegant and strong, I struggled to accept that I must yet again move on. I was consumed by the fear of winter waiting in the wings. I wilted and I wanted and I wept and foresaw only a withering decay. Then, slowly, carried on a fecund mist, I stepped instead into a spurned and slighted autumnal cloak, raven blue and purple. I find that I can sing and I am soothed and I can celebrate halcyon days that had been kissed by gold as I dance amid burgundy and russet leaves with armfuls of berries and grains. Mm, you know, and that is like what you're saying, Liz, there are great things. I find that I'm not trying to be anybody's good girl anymore. Right. 
I don't go places I don't want to go sometimes, you know. Um, now, I, I don't want to offend anybody, so I'll be careful in, in this. But, you know, if there's a, a thing, um, an event on, and before I would have felt, oh, I have to do this, I have to go there, and I have to, and it's really with people I like, and I really don't want to, quite often I say, no, I'm really sorry, I'm busy that night. Thank you very much for thinking of me. Have a great night. Here's the here's the card, with, which is really what was wanted in the first place, you know. Mm. Um, I find I am more honest in my friendships. Maybe I find myself having discussions with people and saying, "Yeah, I yeah, no, I really this is a pain, isn't it? Or that's a pain, or you know, I I don't like this, or um, I I just find myself being honest. I I find, um, but it took a while for that to come. I find and I think for me it was this black or white either I have to be young or I have to be old and suddenly I'm autumn instead and I'm saying well you know what I'm not young uh, I refuse to try to be young but I'm not old like for me this question around sensuality was really big there you know and it really was it was very painful like if I'm not young and I'm not of childbearing age and I've gone through the menopause um you know does that mean that there is no sensuality no sexuality in my life does that mean those things are inappropriate and very definitely good old catholic ireland has something to to answer for in that you know the notion that sensuality is is tied to fertility and procreation and i thought like what am i is it is it okay for me to um is it okay for me to be me to find my way to be me and just to be who I want to be and it's true because sexuality in older people just isn't represented anywhere anywhere and yeah. it's regarded with a sort of a it is not represented anywhere like the the except where it is presented with some kind of as being somehow absurd or hilarious you know that's something you might make fun of yeah. or as something that is in some way problematic something that should be maybe medicated out of us or, or you know um and and I'm not ready to be put out to pasture in that way and even just saying that even just having a conversation around sensual and sensuality actually being different from sexuality why can't I bat my eyelids why can't I flirt like I used to do I'm not I was never the biggest flirter but like why can't I feel good about myself why can't I enjoy a conversation with somebody of the same or opposite sex whichever it happens to be and feel not that it's not shameful that it's not worse than shameful actually is feel that it's not absurd you know that it's in some way ridiculous you know and that's I felt that I, d I don't know if you've come across that but to have one of your very basic life functions suddenly be made ridiculous brutal there's a lot of myths as well because certainly a few years ago I was of the belief that you lost sexual desire around menopause and um, again I don't know where I got that where did I pick that up 
Um, you know, I and, fully and believed that Liz. when you're not yeah. seeing it anywhere, you assume, oh, that's it. Like when menopause hits, that's the end of your sexuality. And it is not at all, as I pleasantly discovered, you know, um, dating yeah. recently. And it's such a myth. And I think for a lot of people, they just put that away, assuming that that's a fact. Um, yeah. And it's such a shame because I think we actually enjoy it more as we age. You know, there's something about, I, I, I wonder if part of the grief is grieving the 30 year olds that we were, you know, and again, from a maternal perspective, um, you know, many of us became parents maybe in the late 20s, early 30s. And there's a decade or two that's just given over to that. And then when you come up for air, you realize who I was when I went into this is so far away now. And there's some mourning for that person we were then. Um, but to rediscover, you know, to, to rediscover sex, to rediscover fun, to rediscover anything physical that mm. we can within our ability, it's such a joy. But for many of us, I think we believe that's the end because we're a certain age or that it's unattainable for us simply because we don't see it. We don't see in the in the movies, um, you know, 50, 60 year olds having a great romantic sex life unless it's funny, like you said. Yeah. And it's it's um, I'm going to read this one for you because this is called Let Me Wear Feathers. Lovely. Okay. <laughs> and and one of the things I, I mean, there is such a sadness in um, s certainly for me growing up in 70s and 80s Ireland. I mean, we as women, we were just, uh, you know, terrified into denying our sexuality for religious reasons, you know, Um and to think that you could go into a relationship. I got married in 96. OK, so to think you could go into a relationship off the back of that sort of, uh, oh, you better not go home pregnant or you better not. And and uh, you can't trust men. And, you know, I could repeat 20 phrases that women of our age would really get because they were we were force fed them, you know, to think that we'd come out at the other end still being ridiculed for our sexuality. I mean, first I was sad, then I was lost, and now I'm just pissed off about it, to be honest with you, you know? Are we never going to be let be ourselves and be delightfully female? Are we never going to get to that stage, do you know? So this is called Let Me Wear Feathers. Let me climb out from under your behave and be quiet and your constant dance to my tune. I am weary from all of your burdens and from cares and losses imposed and never my own. I swallowed because I say so and must do and can't. I suffered the poison and the fears. I've twisted myself into knots to be your perfect and sweet, almost drowning in salt water tears. So let me wear feathers and powders and silks, but only if that's what I will. And let me be 
foolish with laughter and dancing. Let me love where I want, even still. Oh, gorgeous. <laughs> that, that kind of came in a flutter that day and I thought, that's it. That's what I'm... And I, I don't think that I'm a finished product, Liz, and I know some days that awful negative harping is there and that doubting myself is there. Um, but I know it's there now and I know what it sounds like and what it feels like. Um, and I, when I hear it, when I see it or feel it, I think to myself, well, you can book her off. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to work extra hard on you today because I don't want that future for myself. I don't want either desperately having to be something I can't be, which is summer or or just. And, and, and I think it's really interesting you say that thing about you thought sex drive died with the menopause, because I think that is and again. I think that was something that was fed to us. Uh, I do think it had a religious connotation, to be honest with you. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe it's 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 just a real misogynistic thought. That you can procreate, that's the you end. Know, that's the end of it, and that's your use. Yeah. That's yeah. your use yeah. done, you know. What does that mean for those of us who never procreate? Were we never of use? Absolutely. And I have friends who don't have children that yeah. would say that's how they feel. Yeah. Diminished. I, I'm I'm thinking of voices, Mary, and and they're all mostly female voices that I've had recently when, you know, I'm someone who I've loads of projects on the go. I like to be creative. I need to have meaning and purpose. You know, at the moment I'm I'm doing a PhD. I'm running a, a, a group in the Phoenix Park every Tuesday as part of that. Um, I'm building a house. You know, I was speaking with a friend the other day who's a retired palliative care doctor. And I was like, let's do the Camino de Santiago or the Wicklow Way here in Ireland. And let's do a creative project together. And all these things bubble mm. up inside me. And anytime I share what I'm doing or thinking of doing, there's always someone who says, that's too much or take it easy or slow mm. down. No one ever goes, isn't it great? You know, yeah. you're yeah. living, you're embracing, you're being creative. You know, we, we yeah. caution each other all the time. And I think, you know, it's like you said on retirement, we do need purpose. And like after any bereavement or loss, one of the main symptoms we almost feel is what's the purpose of this if we're just going to die? What's yeah. the meaning of my life now? We do lose that sense of purpose. We do lose our meaning a little bit, or many of us do. And we need to find that again in time. And I think, you know, going through menopause is no different. You know, if we're even aware of that, of finding, you've spoken to this, finding our purpose again, finding a new purpose. Yeah. And I wonder if like part of the problem that makes it so difficult for women is, there's so much on our shoulders all the time, the burden of running a home. And I will say burden because I don't blame yeah. much. Yeah. The housework or the laundry or having to come up with some bloody organic homemade meal every day. All these stories were fed. It's such a burden. And, you know, for so many of us to feel like 
we're not hitting the target. We're not meeting the mark. Yeah. You know, the children didn't have five fruit and veg today or whatever version. Yeah. There's so much on our shoulders. It's to be the partner, to be sexy, to be professional, to be a good friend, to be an excellent mother, to be a cook, to be the taxi driver, to earn a living, to have a profession outside the home, to be as good as the men, to mm -hmm. look good, to stay a size eight, um, don't be a size 12, you know, to, to not care so much, to care too much about what we look like the amount of messaging targeted at women, like how any of us come out of it saying mm -hmm. it's a miracle to take care of our elderly parents. You know, the list yeah. goes on and on and on. And on and on. And there's like, and it's a tragedy. And, and, I, and I just said that like, and there's a negativity though. Um, like one of the things I feel is, you know, that, that messaging that's, targeted at women is frequently do this or you know as opposed to wouldn't it be great like if you look at um oh this is i'm, I'm, I'm going to give a terribly stereotyped example now but i'm just trying to make my point so it's a bit extreme so if you look at like a luxury car Okay, so a Mercedes or a, a BMW or whatever. And obviously men who are in their 50s can afford this a heck of a lot easier than men who are in their 20s, the majority. And so they're advertising, let's say Porsche, and, and you have a beautiful woman on it. So the implication is you can afford this. And if you get this, this really good thing is going to happen to you. Now, if you look at a lot of advertising directed at women, it is, oh, you better do this. Or this really bad thing will befall you. So if you do not get this particular type of makeup, the benefit of this makeup is nobody will be able to see how awful your skin is. Nobody will be able to say she looks ghastly. You know, you will look better. So I find that, I mean, I, I, I obviously I have great um, respect for the psychology that's involved in advertising. But I think if you look at a lot of what, uh, women have to do um, and I know when I was working I had three phrases that I used probably made up uh, the suffixes for about 90% of my sentences which is I must I have to and I'm tired and what I am trying to do is be aware of that and not import those into the next phase of my life um, and so the funny thing is I felt I lost a lot. Actually, uh, what I'm discovering is that I have to be very careful to to not to bring the unhelpful bits into the next phase. And so I try not to say I must, because actually I must die sometime. But other than that, there's not a whole pile. There are times I have to go to the bathroom or right? <laughs> you know, I'm trying to in my relationship with people take the must and the have to out of it because it's a very negative um and realize that it's better I if i rest. want to yeah <laughs> i must take a break i must yeah. you know mind myself today or nurture myself yeah. and it's hard and that takes a lot of discipline i certainly yeah. found myself over the last few years when i sort of reinvented myself in my 40s you know i had this moment of i had four children under the age of four I was drowning in domesticity and yeah. 
loving the kids, but not very much valuing this role and the invisibility and the mm -hmm. exhaustion that came with it. And I went back to college. I did the master's in bereavement and loss. And then I went and then I did a movement training program and really gave myself permission to live again, you know, and and part of menopause is you forgot where you were going to say. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot yeah. where I was going with that. But you know, sorry, I, I remember now, Um, you know, getting caught up then in just working an awful lot, trying to relaunch myself, reinvent myself to the point where I wasn't letting myself rest at weekends. It was mm -hmm. my catch up time on my research or, you know, writing or something. And I've really made a shift the last six months um, to a really, you're allowed to have a weekend, every weekend, you know, just to be, just to go out with the kids or meet up with friends or potter around the garden. I really had to give myself back that gift of pottering. Um, and, mm -hmm. and that's certainly something that I want to bring in to my autumn is to allow myself to sit and paint or write a poem or just potter, which I did loads of in my 20s and 30s. And, and just to say as well, I've heard menopause described as the second spring. But yeah. I like the idea of it being an autumn instead of a second spring. It's definitely a new season. And I suppose that the what I found when I came to this season is the roadmaps for it were really not there. That is not a judgment on the older generation. I do not think they had the choice. I do not think they would have been allowed to articulate in the way that we are. Oh. Um, but I, I really think it's important that we find a good way to do this. And I do think it's important that we have the conversation actually, because we have a generation coming up behind us. Are they going to get to hear and say, I never knew people still felt sexual after the menopause. It was never spoken about. I never knew that in, you could be creative in your fifties and sixties and seventies. I never knew, you know, because like, we never knew those things. Are our are the generation coming up behind us going to say that? And they will if we don't really be honest and say it out. And 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 also there has to be <laughs> the one thing I do have going for me is a sort of eventual, a sort of a stubbornness. Um. So after all the self-flagellation and the the doubt and the, you know, I I kind of come to a very ornery sort of no. I'm not going to live like this. There has to be something better for me. And even if that better is just something that I have for myself, I want something better. And I, I'm refusing to say it's just winter or summer. I found, you know, now what my autumn will look like, it will be different from your autumn, it will be different, but shouldn't autumn be celebrated? And it's a wonderful season, season of mists and mellow fruitfulness. I mean, you know, um, some of the greatest writing, I mean, like actually writers are lucky because it's, it's understood in their 50s and 60s. They're kind of at the height of where they're going to be, you know, Um 
but some of the greatest of anything we've had. I mean, it comes from, uh, and as you say, you asked me what women I admired. Look at those women in their 50s and 60s who got really became expert at what they do, like Marion Fanuke. And she was an amazing broadcaster and she really came into herself in her 50s and 60s. And why can't we literally come into our new self? Why does that have to be in any way negative? Why does it have to be ridiculous or diminished or diminishable? Why can't it be wonderful? What do you do, Mary, with that anger, that or orneriness, you know, that, you know, that's something that I still, I wouldn't say I struggle with, but it's still there. And I often go, this needs, you know, an outlet. Yesterday, I found 12 eggs in my cupboard and they were a couple of weeks out of date. And I just felt this smile come over my face. And my one of my sons was in, he's 13 with his friend. I said, come on, let's go smash some eggs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and his friend, he's a girl, just grabbed them by the handful. And myself and her went out the back and we just started smashing eggs against the tarmac. And it felt so good. But I know that there's some, there's a rage in me having grown up in a house full of men and the things that were imposed on me and that are still often imposed on me and that are expected of me, not just from family, but from greater society. Um, I, my children are a little bit younger than yours. I think we're maybe 10 years. I, mm -hmm. I obviously had children 10 years after you because we're similar ages, but um, I'm still in school WhatsApp groups, you know, it's yeah. all women. Like, are men not parenting? It's all women. And it makes my blood boil, you know, mm -hmm. that this mm -hmm. is what we're seeing. Or even my older children, my older boys, where's my this or where's my that? Well, when did you put it in the washing machine? Well, I left it there for you. Well, why is that my responsibility? I find myself always struggling with the responsibility that society's yeah. put on my shoulders that I don't want. Yeah. Um, Liz, I always said the happiest day of my life was when my children entirely finished in primary school because it was never again going to be a bloody morning where you woke up and suddenly you had to have a costume ready for International Book Day or pebbles collected from the shore that were to be painted. Or um, My second happiest day definitely was the day my, children, my youngest finished secondary school. And I thought, I'm not going to have to go to another parent teacher meeting and stand for hours and be chat, chat, chatting. And it, it isn't that I don't like the people around her. I have great friends around her. But, you know, it's such an artificial thing. And you're there. <laughs> and certainly with my daughter, I would go. She was in the school where I had taught before I left to work with the department. And they would say she's doing nothing. And I would say, yeah, I know. What, what, what do you want me to do here? I know she'll do nothing. I can't make her do anything either, you know. Um, I, I don't, like, it's lovely to be released from those things. Now, we stick with them. We have to do them. Like I was saying to you, I, I got this empty nest. 
And everybody kept saying, oh, you poor thing, this empty nest and it's going to be awful and it's going to be. Well, do you know what I'm going to tell you? It wasn't awful. Bizarrely, I would suddenly put something down. It wouldn't get used. It wouldn't get moved. It would be there when I wanted it. And I found actually that I was able to get used. My kids come home a lot at the weekends and they're bringing partners with them now and things like that. You know, so it was a lovely mix between quiet and but but I really did appreciate my time, but I felt almost embarrassed about that. Or, you know, is there something wrong with me? Was I not a good mother that I really liked my space and that I really liked having my house not pulled apart and torn apart? I, a, a few years ago, just stopped and decided um, I find very good ways of convincing myself I'm doing things I want to do for the greater good. So I explained to my children that I would not wash any more of their clothes because they would be hopeless for partners when they got older if I continued to do all of that, you know. But I did feel that anger, Liz. And I mean, part of it is directed at myself. Why can't I? Why am I still trying to be all things to all people? Why can't I just stop and say? And I look around and there are other people who can. Um, now, I was the eldest daughter in my family. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. I, I, I mean, I don't know. But why can't I stop and say, yeah, this is who I am. I'm going to just do things. You know, you talked about creativity and having things in your life. And I have started to ask myself this question. How is this serving me? And I don't mean, is this good for me all the time or is this? But if it's actually, if I'm doing something that I feel I'm obligated to do, that's still damaging me. That's, you know, making me feel really resentful or making me feel hidebound or, or constrained or limited, then why am I doing it? Could there not, can I not use my imagination to think of a better way of doing this? But I'm still, and I, I am, you know, this amazes me that I could come to this age and still think that I be unquestioning and accept the stuff that's handed. And I don't want to hurt or harm anybody in my life. I'm very clear about that. That's not how I want to go through my life. I don't want to, you know, and it's something that takes work because I'm very good at being judgmental. So deciding not to be judgmental in my autumn is, is actually hard work, but it's something that I want for myself. Mm -hmm. um, that's not to say I'm never judgmental now or never a little bit sarcastic or anything like that, but I don't want to be that all of the time, you know. Um, but at the same time, I'm not I don't want to be silenced. You know, I don't want uh, and that we have all of these negative stereotypes about women, a harpy, she's shrill, she's so that if you ask for what you want for yourself, if you refuse to do something that is really serving you very badly, 
then you're a harpy or you're shrill or you're, you know, these really a crone, a crone. And like I said, if I'm going to be a crone, I'm going to be the best damn crone I can be. I'm going to out crone everybody else. <laughs> Just, you know, and that's and it's about and I'll tell you what got lost for me in the anger. And this is um why I said I recognize why the anger is there. I actually think it's justifiable. What got lost for me in the anger was joy. And mm. so when I asked that question, how is this serving me? I realized it was allowing me to let out things that had to be let out. But then I said, but that's, you know, there has to be a point at which I say, okay, now that's enough for the moment because for me, anger and joy weren't coexisting. And I'm determined to find joy. So yeah. the notion of smashing the eggs seems brilliant to me because it's both, you know, yeah. it's both. It's so, there's such an energy with it, you know, and I think it's only destructive when it's not used or, yeah. you know, um, but it can be frustrating to have, you know, to see the world in a certain way and see the injustice and to live in a world that doesn't always see it or to be surrounded by people who don't get it because they're so blinded by societal norms. It can be quite lonely. And mm. I suppose that is, you know, like a bereavement in that way where people who haven't had a profound loss really don't understand it. So it's a lonely place mm. to be. Um, so, you know, we know that the more we talk about grief and and death and what it feels like to lose someone we love, the more people can identify with that and we normalize it. And equally with menopause and transitions and midlife, it is it does absolutely need to be talked about and perhaps in a different way, as well as the way it's been currently spoken about. Like I said, a lot of what I see is about trying to retain youth for as long as mm -hmm. possible, as opposed to going with this transition and not resisting mm -hmm. it, but embracing it for, for the, the beauty it can bring. Mary, will you tell us about the book? It's absolutely gorgeous. Will? Thank Would you, you believe it has arrived? It has ah, arrived, nice. finally. Yeah. Um, it, I'm delighted with it. It's It's... The funny thing is the book itself was a transition because I I was going through this awful period um, and, and it was really awful. It was as profound a grief stage as I've ever gone through. And we talked about so, some of the other griefs I've gone through. You know, it really was. And there was anger and denial and rage. And, you know, it was so profound. And I found myself, yeah. you know, I found myself not knowing who I was, mm. who I was supposed to be. I I found myself thinking, am I going to come out on the, how, am I going to come out on the other end of this? How am I going to come out on the other end of this? And I started writing and some of the earlier poems um, you know, are, are challenging. You know, there's that sense of there's some of the poems talk about that sense of pain that I I genuinely felt. Um, I, I, I'm assuming like I'm happy to talk about this. I'm assuming most women feel this. I could be wrong, but, 
good, you know. But but I'm happy to talk about it. And see, this was not easy. This was brutal, brutal on my sense of self. It destroyed everything I thought I knew about myself. And and I didn't know where I was going to. So I mean, I just said, thank God I am a writer now. And the funny thing is, my editor is male, you know. Can you imagine this poor man when we came to editing these poems? And he was I'm like, no, that's not what that means. <laughs> um, and he was trying to, to to polish things up that were perhaps very rawly stated. And, um, but, but somewhere through it all, I thought I would really like to be in conversation with other women who experiences because actually I felt for the first time in my life that I didn't have the wisdom to figure this out on my own. I thought I, I'm I'm struggling so profoundly that I need help. And I and I think I need help from people who are going through this. Or I think it would be helpful for me to be talking about this with people who are going through it. So actually, I, I said it to a number of, of different friends of mine who are artists and Rebecca and Susan are the two that said, yeah. And it's a it's a big thing to commit. And I had never done I'd done a number of collaborations, hadn't done a collaboration with two artists before. And this style is quite different. And Rebecca had some paintings and she said, oh, gosh, I really think this painting might sit well with this. Susan said, yeah, no, I'm going to start. I'm going to do all of them entirely from scratch because this really speaks to me. Susan had had um, health issues. She'd had a brain tumor. She she got married while we were doing the book. She she got remarried. Um, Rebecca had health issues. She got breast cancer um, just before we started on this. And so she was coming out of breast cancer when we did this. Again, her kids, one was gone. One is, was in her last year in school. So she's preparing for the empty nest. And so we had a lot of commonality uh, where we stood. Yeah, I, I, I felt the two ladies were a bit ahead of me, being honest with you. They, they seemed to be more accepting of where they were than I was. And sometimes they would say, they would literally say to me, stop talking about yourself like that. Can you imagine the power of that? I would say, I feel this or I feel that. And they would say, they would say stop it right now. You wouldn't ever speak about another person. Stop talking about yourself like that. And we we married um this idea of the maid the mother and the crone and as i say they were they were horrified by the crone in the beginning and it took a long time before they understood yeah you're dead right we shouldn't accept these things and we shouldn't be limited or reduced by titles or language um and then they began to paint and and sometimes previously i had worked with rebecca so i would do a poem she would do a painting but now there were two and sometimes they were doing two paintings for one poem and no paintings. And we realized towards the end that anything we thought about how the book might work wasn't going to work. So then I said, oh, OK, well, now we need to come up with something entirely new. And that's what I did. So there are bookie bits, as I call them, which are kind of my thoughts and the explanation of what we were going through and how we worked. And then the poems go in. And then the paintings go in. But right towards the end, we thought, wouldn't it be awful if people thought this landed out of the sky and they didn't see our mess? 
And so then we started putting in pictures of the process and the mess and the, and that's where the bookie bits came. So what we have is this desire from the three of us, to be honest, okay, this is where we, we end up in a particular place, but this is the mess that came as we ended up and this is the thought process. And like one of the things we included, which I thought was very funny, we included pictures of us as children. We include, yeah, you know, I just thought it's, let's just show where we started um, off. Uh, the girls included pictures of, of shapes that they had seen that inspired the paintings. And they're beautiful. They're, they're really, uh, they're beautiful and they're challenging both um you know there there are parts in it like we have included that's my messy desk there and that's an early painting a kind of a drawing of susan's of an idea that she had that became another poem so we've we've included the process as well i adore um susan's work and um, because she went with the idea of shape shifting I don't know if you can see this one, um, you know, the idea of sh shape shifting, because that's what I felt was going on in my world, that I was having to change not just from one age of my life, but one iteration or, you know, completely. I was being asked to turn into something different, somebody who doesn't go to work somebody who is not parenting or hoping to parent, somebody who has to find a completely different way of being in the world now. And so, uh, you know, and, and we were very focused on crows because I, I, Rebecca has this little balcony outside her house, which only she can go across. Rebecca's like a little fairy and she can skip across it. Um, and she feeds crows. And, and crows are very beautiful. You know, we, we, we in Ireland have this thing about crows being a very ugly bird or plain bird. Their feathers are amazing. You know, they're purple. Very completely clever they can speak actually they're as smart as parrots or cockatoos they can be thought to speak incredibly clever um and their plumage is not bright orange and bright you know and for me that became a kind of a symbol i talked about my cloak being different my plumage being different absolutely still as beautiful as it ever was it's who i am and it's all i can be and so it's right for me but it's not what it used to be. And so that's okay. I love that you've included photos of you as children. Yeah. You know, because yeah. It's, it's so important to put it in context of the life cycle and um, yeah. rather than just, you know, childhood or motherhood or middle, you know, we are yeah. all constantly evolving and growing and shape shifting. And most of us do it unconsciously. Mm. I think, you know, one thing the church did give us was ritual and we haven't really replaced that, you know, um, and I think it would be lovely to find more ritual in our lives. In fact, mm. when, I was, when I turned 40, I don't know if you can see it there. Yes, it's lovely. The triskela, um, I got that tattooed on my wrist, you know, to show that I was in the mid, to remind myself yeah. I'm in yeah. the middle of my life now. And uh, if I'm lucky, 
um, and don't waste a minute, you know. And yeah. then when I turned 50, I got the symbol for breeze <laughs> tattooed there and right beside it to remind me just to breathe in the breathe. midst of everything. Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's a it's a beautiful piece of work, Mary, and I hope people will pick it up. Is it available for pre-order now? It's, it, it is available to pre-order. The, the easiest way is if people, and I'm a very trusting person because I, I've never, people have never pre-ordered for me. I send the book out, they can pay afterwards, they can pay as I'm sending it out. And I've never, ever, ever, no one has never not paid me. So the easiest way is just to email me. If you go to my website, which is marycanelli.com, that's the easiest way. I can send you, I can send you the link and, uh, it's the easy way, just email, you know, do the contact me and we'll sort it out and I'll send it anywhere. They're limited edition, so they're not going to be in any bookshops because they really are a work of art. They'll be signed and numbered. Um, the paintings are for sale and then there are beautiful prints that are for sale with whatever combination people want themselves. So this and I knew going in is not a, a typical book. This was more of a, an exhibition or installation, if you if you like. And, and the books come out, I think there's only going to be 250. So um, anyone just contact me through through my email and, and um, I'll send it anywhere in the world, pretty much. If it speaks to you, if you feel you're, you're, you're going through and you, or you don't want to be invisible and, and you want to find your autumn cloak, then you're welcome. No doubt it'll spark conversations around, around the world. I have um, visitors coming to me in... They're in Ireland now from Australia, a listener of the podcast, um, a, you know, a woman uh, in midlife also who's been bereaved. And I just love that, you know, she's processing her grief through art. She picked up Shapes of Grief. She listened to all the episodes. She's done the training. She's coming to Ireland now with her girlfriend on a, on a road trip. And I just think women of a certain age are amazing. Okay. You know, yeah. sit me down with a woman in her 50s, 60s or 70s any day before any other demographic, because, you know, we've been through so much. There's such a wisdom there. There's so much worth listening to. Um, and I hope, you know, I hope things change for our daughters. And I suppose we're doing the work, aren't we? And I think that is the importance of the work, actually. Yeah. It's about honesty. It's about saying, I didn't know I was going to hit this time in my life when everything would, would go from under my feet, when, you know, it was done so silently and so secretively. And that word, it was invisible. And, and, and I mean, a huge disservice was done to those women to say, go in the corner and be invisible. And whatever you're suffering, suffer it quietly. Um, and I want my daughter to know, actually, you're going to have multiple changes in your life. And no matter how settled or, you know, like we can see the, the ones that are massively challenging, um, like a bereavement, a divorce, um, uh, the loss of a child. You know, we understand those things. But actually, there are natural uh, changes in one's life that are unavoidable. Actually, if you're lucky enough to be still alive, yeah. there are these natural changes. And the other thing, Liz, and I might read this last poem from the book, actually, because one yeah. of the things is, and working with the two girls, can I just say, 
I did find a wisdom in in other people going through the same thing um and you know you're talking about your visitor that's coming that that had this massive change but that did something about it she's coming with a friend she's done all the courses she's traveling she's we get such strength from each other when we're honest when yeah. we're honest you know we, we really do this is called dance and it's um you know at, at different times i began to address in the poems the crones that had gone before me and say are you going to help me here you know you people figured this out give me a little bit of help here and this one is is the crone replying so this is called dance there as the waves lick my feet in the swallowing sand on a breeze that kisses and whips the voices of those ancient others come. You are woman, always beautiful and unsure and dangerous and magnificent. Come, take your place with us and dance around the fire under a full moon. That's gorgeous. We're wonderful creatures. We really are. I was actually at the full moon two nights ago down on the beach here in Greystones with a group of women and a fire yeah. beach. And yeah. It's yeah. a it's necessary ritual, yeah. you know, in a world that's become quite void of ritual and the sacred, you know. Sacred, yeah. And the sacred feminine, we really do have to reclaim. And and the fact is we are wonderful. And yes, we're dangerous, and yes, we can be vicious and we can be all of those things, but so can men, and and we are entitled to be our way. I love it. Mary, thank you. It's been lovely speaking with you again. Liz, thanks so much. It was lovely to talk to you again. So marycanelly.com. K-E-N-N-E-L-L-Y. marycanelly.com. Super. Mary Canelli, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Shapes of Grief. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice. So if your grief is making you unwell, please do see your healthcare provider. I know that some of you want to learn more about the experience of loss and the process of grieving, either for yourself or for someone you support. You can become grief trained by signing up on shapesofgrief.com. Use the code PODCAST15 for 15% off today. The beautiful music is called The Lost Words Blessing, and we have kind permission to use it for the Shapes of Grief podcast. Until the next time, from me, Liz Gleason, take really good care. Enter the wild with care, my love, and speak the things you see. Let new names take and root and thrive and grow. And even as you travel far from heather, crag and river, may you, like the little fisher, set the stream alight with glitter. May you enter now as otter, without falter, into water. Look to the sky with care, my love, and speak the things you see Let new names take a root and thrive and grow 
journey on past dying stars exploding like the gilded one in flight leave your little gifts of light and in the dead of night my darling find the gleaming eye of starling like the little aviator sing your heart to all dark matter Let the raven call 